It's 530. I'd like to call this meeting of the Plan Commission to order. I'd like to caution anybody who's around that has anything electronic, this would be a good time to turn it off, or at least not make it beep. We have a quorum. We have no registrants for public comment. Are there any disclosures or recusals? Mr. Shepard? Just the disclosure. I did serve on the Garber Selection Committee, but I don't think that will be a conflict. It isn't? Thank you. Thank you. Minutes of the March 23rd meeting. Is there a motion to approve? Moved by Mr. Cantrell, seconded by Alder Zellers. Any discussion of the minutes? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Passes unanimously. Schedule of meetings. We only have one more meeting in April on the 20th. We have two in May on the 4th and the 18th. We have special meetings on zoning code revisions, Tuesday the 14th and Tuesday, May 12th, both from 5 to 7, both in room 260 at the Madison Municipal Building. That brings us to routine business. Alder Zellers, I'm sorry. That's okay. I think you already have this, but I will not be present at the May 4th or 12th meetings. Thank you. Thank you for that information. Bringing us to routine business. I'm going to take them separately because we have registrants on item two. So routine business item one, Legistar 37360, authorizing the selection of a portion of Census Tract 20 as the focus for concentration, neighborhood planning process, and the creation of an ad hoc steering committee. Mr. Rui moves approval. Is there a second by Mr. Cantrell? Discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Opposed, no. Passes unanimously. Bringing us to item two, Legistar 37723, accepting the proposal of the bomb development for the redevelopment of the Garver Feed Mill. Now, do we have a staff presentation before? Dan Rolfs from the Office of Real Estate Services is here to answer questions. Did you want to make a presentation? Did you want to make a presentation now, Dan, or would you prefer to wait until after registrants? It's totally up to you. I'm fine waiting. Okay. Okay. We have three registrants. The first registrant is Jeffrey Cotteran, 33 East Main Street, neither supporting nor opposing, wishing to speak, representing Alternative Continuum of Care, LLC. Jeff, come on up. Mr. Chair, do you mind if Mr. Landgraf speaks before me? Not at all. The first speaker will be Tom Landgraf, 104 Ash Street, neither supporting nor opposing, wishing to speak, also representing Alternative Continuum of Care, 
He'll be followed by Jeff Rakotarin, who will be followed by Lujos Jablonski. Welcome, Mr. Landgraf. You've got three minutes, and if you need a little more, we'll talk. Well, last time I rehearsed it, it took three minutes and 12 seconds, so hopefully I'll get through. Good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to comment on the resolution before you. It recommends the Baum development proposal as the primary one for Garver redevelopment and ACC as the backup proposal. As you know, I'm Tom Landgraf from Dimension Development, and we're part of the ACC team, which was one of the four respondents to the city RFP seeking redevelopment proposal for the Garver feed mill. ACC is short for Alternative Continuum of Care, which is an older adult housing business founded, owned, and operated in Wisconsin, Iowa, and Minnesota by Scott Frank. Currently, Scott has a similar but much larger operating business in Madison known as Oak Park Place. That's 350 units, about 300 employees located in the Sprecher neighborhood. As some of you may know, Scott's father also worked at the Garver feed mill for 44 years. Scott and several of his siblings worked there during high school, making bucks for college. So he is quite familiar with the Garver feed mill, and as a result of that, the proposal is both a business venture for Scott and also a personal one to see the building rehabbed. The materials that you have in front of you are for the Baum proposal. I thought I would just very briefly tell you what the ACC proposal is, since that's also part of your recommendation going forward. It is the restoration of the Garver mill into housing, community space, and the construction of additional housing units adjacent to the feed mill in total. There will be 148 units of older adult, independent, assisted, and memory care housing, 35 of which will be set aside for persons with incomes below 60% of the county median, or in other words, affordable units. ACC will meet all three of the prescribed city RFP requirements, and that is using only five acres of the North Platte, accepting only the $1,850,000 of city financial support, and agreeing to construct 14,000 square feet of storage for Oldbrook Gardens. There will be 24-7 on-site staffing, a full commercial kitchen, and a daycare center available for staff as well as neighborhood residents. That daycare center will operate two shifts, one for the typical person who needs daycare during the day, and the second one who would need daycare for second shift work. There's roughly 10,000 square feet of community space for use by patrons of the bike path, Oldbrook Gardens, the neighborhood, and other uses. There's food service available and could be provided to these functions. At a maximum, events could be held in that space for about 300 folks. All of the housing, community space, and common space is heated and cooled using ground source geothermal. Just about there. Okay. Ground source geothermal. All four of the development proposals use federal and state historic tax credits. That amounts to about 40% of the cost of redeveloping Garber. That's the good news. The bad news is that the state budget contemplates major changes to how the state historic credits are going to be used, which could mean alternative financing needs to be identified. ACC stands ready to move quickly as the backup proposal should something not work out with the more complicated bound proposal. However, we wanted to let you know this evening that 
the ability for us to move and move quickly and put a proposal on the ground exactly as submitted is going to be dictated by timing on when we can get started on working with the state tax credits. And I think staff may have more information for you on that. So I just wanted you to be aware that while you're recommending us as the backup proposal, there is a time limit associated with that. Thank you. Other questions for Mr. Landgraf? Seeing none, thank you. Next registrant, Jeff Verkaterin, 33 East Main Street. Neither supporting nor opposing, wishing to speak. Jeff? Thank you, and I'm also part of the ACC team with Tom Landgraf. Just wanted to touch a bit more on the process and what the committee's role is here. Certainly this is before you in terms of a recommendation that will ultimately go to the Board of Estimates and then to the council following up on the ad hoc committee's recommendation. A few thoughts just following up on what Tom had said about the timing of the historic tax credits. Certainly dealing with this building from just a structural perspective takes an extraordinary amount of financial resources. So both with the bound proposal and with our ACC proposal, the state historic tax credits make up a significant portion of the project financing. So the risk of losing the historic tax credits at the end of the year potentially, if there's any disruption in the approval process or if there's a decision to proceed with negotiating with the bound proposal and then at some point later in the year switching to our proposal, could really endanger the project financing and ultimately the ability of the project to ultimately go through regardless of which form that's in. So what we're encouraging the committee to do is to consider ways that the process can move forward with both of these proposals so that we're not in a situation where we've gone down a path with one proposal and then suddenly say in September turn to the so-called backup plan at that point. So tonight we're encouraging the committee to move forward with the recommendation because we're happy that we were selected as one of the proposals for this site but to perhaps make a recommendation to Board of Estimates to continue to work with both groups as this process moves forward. Thank you. Other questions for Mr. Ricotteran? Alder Zellers? Whoops, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just wondering what you have in mind in terms of continuing to work with both. Well, in the materials that Mr. Landgraf had provided in advance of the meeting, which I believe are on Legistar now, there's a point where we reach essentially a cutoff point in June where we need six months regardless of which proposal is selected to essentially qualify for the state historic tax credits. So I think, and staff may be able to speak more to this in terms of what the next steps are in the process after this kind of go-around with the various committees ends up back at council and in terms of what the steps are for further negotiations with 
whichever proposal is selected. Um, but we'd like to explore ways where there could be, uh, instead of a, um, kind of cutting off one proposal at that point and dealing uh, exclusively with it, if there are ways to work on a parallel path um, so that we could get our application in for the, the state historic tax credits at the same time as uh, the bound proposal so that uh, we're not in a situation where we were selected in September and haven't don't have our application materials in on time. Um, would you be or would the team be willing to commit some dollars to what would need to be done going forward? That's one of the concerns I would have is it sounds like that there would be a substantial financial commitment um, in moving forward at a parallel path. That's why I'm not quite clear on what you have kind of envisioned. Uh, there would be. I mean, certainly on our end of things, there would be a, a significant financial commitment in terms of preparing the, the application materials for the state credit, and we're, we're certainly willing to do that, um, recognizing that at some point the BOM proposal might fully proceed, and then, and then those are essentially lost uh, dollars for us. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're confident in the proposal that we have that um, senior housing is something that, that um, uh, ACC has done well around town and can, can get financed and can proceed um, to final completion. Uh, so we have a lot of confidence in that and are willing to make that investment. Um, thank you, and I did appreciate the um, timeline that you put together. That was helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Any additional questions for this register? <clears throat> thank you, then. And finally, Lou Host Jablonski, 2033 or, hmm? or 2088. Lou, which one is 2088. 2088 Atwood Avenue, in support, available to answer questions. Did you yeah. wish to speak at this point? Let me, let me say a few things. Um, okay. For those of you who um, there's a few of you here were involved in the process. Um, the um, uh, I hope that the the comments that the the ACC proposal folks made don't confuse the issue. Uh, the um, the recommendation from the RFP committee was quite clear that uh, the bound proposal be the front runner. Uh, there was a discussion about the issue of should there be a backup proposal at all. If so, how would it be handled? And the, the, the smarter heads on the, on the aldermanic heads on the committee were really um, discouraging the notion of trying to run two parallel tracks with, with um, two different groups, the kind of stress that that would put at staff and the kind of sort of dysfunctionality that that would bring to the process was a real concern. And so they actually considered that option, making their recommendation to, to plan commission and decided against. Uh, they, they made a real clear recommendation to um, um, uh, you know, to have a primary proposal and then a backup if necessary. The, I want to um, uh, reiterate, though, what the ACC folks are saying. Uh, we're very concerned about the condition of the building have been. I've been a neighborhood resident for, uh, well, 35 years, but working on, on Garver in various uh, forms, various committees for over 20 years. The building's melting. Uh, we need, to, get, we need to, to be able to get our contractors in there, and we would really like for it not to go through another winter without some sort of protection, at least temporary protection on the tops of the walls. So anything that staff can do, 
that this committee can do, that the other committees can accelerate this process and make it so that it doesn't take longer, so that it's not dysfunctional, is really going to be in the interests of not only the building, but of the neighborhood, of the project, of Oldbrook, and so on. So that's something that confuses that project and makes the process and takes it take longer. Actually, is going to be worse for the for the for the building as a whole. I, um, just a second. Don't leave yet, Lou. Um, Ms. Hamilton, this one. So a question that I would have for you is, is um, if, you know, once we have uh, questions for staff, we can find out more from them. But if staff um, would not believe that it would take longer th and they, for any, for some reason, a parallel path was um, discussed and uh, decided on or something, would that hurt you? I don't see in any way that would hurt us. I'm, I'm just concerned that um, that if, if if that weren't the case, I mean, what you're describing is best case scenario. Cool. Right. I think that, that, that covers all the bases. I have no problem with that. I don't think our team would either. But we're concerned that anything that would sort of um, even even a month, even two weeks is, like, really important to us to, to, to get in there. We're, we're concerned that the process of writing all the land development agreements, the uh, working with the state DNR to work out the land swap, um, the the we can't even start like putting a mortar on a brick until all of that is ready. And so we're like crossing our fingers that we can get in there in late October, November. You know, it's going to be pushed that far to the. So we're we just want to make sure that it goes smoothly. So yeah. do you have any concerns about the complexity of your project um, holding up the tax credits or? No, we're pretty confident about that. Uh, the, if if we can move along, just like ACC said, right. if we can move along, um, the tax credits, um, uh, as I understand, I'm not expert on tax credits, but they Nor they, am I. they turn into a pumpkin <laughs> like December 31st. Okay. We have to have our applications in. We want like by October, so things have to really roll along. But uh, every every whoever whoever was selected would would be sort of facing the same kind of pumpkin deadline because what happened at the state level. Right, and certainly also, you know, if, if tax credits became a problem, then your issue of the building needing protection for the winter would would be even worse. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. That would be, that, exactly. That's true of all the proposals. Okay, thanks. Any additional questions for Mr. Jablonski, Mr. Host Jablonski? And, Ken, I'm, think, I'm thinking Dan's going to give a much more thorough I mean, I haven't tried to do any kind of presentation about what the project's about or anything. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Uh, Dan? Do you have anything you want to add? Go Badgers. <laughs> All right. Are there any questions for Mr. Rawls? Seeing none, thank you for your succinct report. Uh, if there are questions, and there seem to be none, then uh, all the king. So when are we going to get to the question that is at hand, which is about this parallel path? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we do. I'm not sure that it's germane. I think what's germane before us, you know, is land use, and what we have is a proposal accepting the proposal of bond development for the redevelopment of the Garver feed mill and the most appropriate path, it seems to me, is a motion to approve. Just to answer Alder King's question, that's probably a discussion that's more germane at the Board of Estimates. Mr. Ross, you want to add something? Certainly. I did not mean to be uh, glib with my remarks, but 
the prospect of dual paths is daunting from a staffing perspective. We have a host of processes that will have to take place to get to approval of any project, regardless of whether it's BOM, ACC, or either of the other two. Uh, those things are in no particular order and not limited to. We will have to do a land division. We will have to have a site plan. That site plan will drive the land division. There will be an entitlement process with potentially a rezone or conditional use permit or permit conditional use approvals with plural granted. Uh, there will be a lengthy discussion with the neighborhood about what the project will look like. There will be a discussion about a ground lease or leases. There will be a development agreement. There will be an agreement between the city, the development team, along with the park division and Ulrich Gardens to construct space as required by the RFP to serve Ulrich and the Parks Department. Uh, there will also be uh, additional work that will be done on the development team side to do the architectural designs, the state and federal historic tax credit applications, uh, all of their due diligence required by their lender as far as phase one, phase two on the building and the land. And at some point, we will have to fish or cut bait because we can't, for no other reason, we can't divide the property twice. We need one piece of ground that's divided for whatever the end use is. So if it's BAUM or if it's ACC or whomever, we have to know what that shape and what that parcel is going to look like. So to do that, you know, I, I've told several folks we can manufacture miracles, but we cannot bend time and space. And there will be a time where we can't do more with what we have as far as time and as far as the actual space on the site. Alder Zellers? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. No. Ms. Hamilton Nisbet? So although th that the component of, of parallel paths is not something that we are dealing with here, I'm hearing, then, but a question that I would have is, do you have any concerns at all about the bond proposal and the tax credits. I, we heard from, um, from you know, testimony that that wasn't a concern on behalf of, of Baum. But what about you? In that, if there if there was a concern by staff or if it did fall through, there then what? Then the tax credits are gone, and then it's back to the whole RFP process again. Correct. Regardless of whom is selected. I have concern, staff has concerns about the ability to complete all of the tasks that are out there in the required time frame with the additional uncertainty that's provided by the, the budget process that's out there right now. Uh, we keep hearing mixed messages from the state about when deadlines are or might be, and we've heard as much as a quarter, of, uh, a calendar year quarter of, of swing between when deadlines may or may not happen for submission and all of these other things. And we just don't know and probably won't know until the budget is adopted. Um, all of that being said, given the number of moving parts that are with any proposal, regardless of whether it's BOM or ACC, the potential for this not getting done in the time required you know, is reasonable and is a concern. We will be talking and have been talking with in this case, Baum, about what the fallback is should the tax credits not be available. Uh, I don't have a great answer for you right now, but we're working on it. Okay, thank you.
Any additional questions? Then a motion would be in order. Mr. Cantrell? I move that we accept the bond proposal. Seconded by Alder Zellers. Any discussion? Mr. Rui? Thank you. I intend to vote for it, but I have a couple concerns as I vote yes. One is that it appears to me that the motor vehicle accommodations are actually isolating the Garber building from the rest of the site. It basically encircles the Garber building and isolates it from the rest of the sites, making it difficult for pedestrians to access the rest of the site. The other thing I've noted is even though you've got a main entrance for bikes off the Capital City Trail, that's about it for bikes. And then maybe a bike rack and a B-cycle rack, but that's right off the Capital City path. And there should be more looking at bike accommodation within and through the site, which is totally lacking on the overall use plan that I see. But I will vote for it. Thank you. I appreciate your comments. Ms. Hamilton-Nisbet? I'm also voting in favor of this. So the only comments that I have are that, I mean, I think this is a really interesting proposal. And I think that the advantages of it actually are, there are greater advantages than what's listed by staff, just because I have a background in the food business and food manufacturing and a whole bunch of other things. But I think that with the food community on the east side and Monona Atwood and Willie Street in particular, I think this could really have a lot of synergy. The only thing I'd want to ensure is that when you're talking about food production, especially when you are looking at the numbers of different types of food being proposed here, I saw crackers, I saw creamery, I saw cheese, I saw lots of different things potentially. There are a lot of logistics attached to that. And my background in food manufacturing, we're talking 40,000 pounds of, you know, big trucks. This wouldn't be that, and I understand it. But this is going to need to have circulation. If you were talking about refrigerated trucks, you were going to have to have a place for those, or they will be idling. Those kinds of things. I think they really need to be considered here because you are really talking about such a large concept. It's such a high concept. And there are so many logistics to this that I didn't see in the proposal. I like the proposal a lot, but I think the logistics really need to be vetted out here henceforth. And so I would just encourage that to be done because otherwise you could run into a significant amount of problems, not only from the neighbors, certainly, but just also from the purveyors and from people who would be coming in and out of the site. You want it to be successful. This, I think, could be extremely successful, especially from the food aspect, not just the micro-lodge concept, but I'm looking at it from the food standpoint. And I would just encourage some more nuts and bolts work, which I think can be done on this proposal. But I'm also voting yes for it. Thank you. Mr. Cantrell. I obviously made the recommendation, and I think this is a very exciting proposal, and I think it's very complementary to Obert Gardens. Just the food aspect of it, the lodging aspect of it, the event programming aspect of it, I think it's very exciting, and it could be a destination. And 
It also will preserve a building, I think, that has merit. So I think that I will say it probably is a very risky proposal as well, but I think that it has the most advantages to be a real spectacular project. So I'm crossing my fingers. Thank you. Anyone else? Mr. Shepard? Just a quick comment regarding the proposal. Just a word for the bond team, that they have been very cooperative during the RFP process to go back to look at their plans to upgrade them in terms of the logistics and that sort. So they've been, again, working on this plan and updating it and evolving it as we've been going along. So I think some of the comments regarding questions in terms of biking, transportation, multimodal access and that sort, you know, they've been, and they understand exactly all the challenges that they face, but up to this point they've been very thoughtful in terms of developing their plan. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Shepard. Anyone else then? Then all those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Passes unanimously. That brings us to the public hearing portion of our meeting. I want to note for anyone who hasn't been here before, first of all, again, if you've got a cell phone, now would be a good time to turn it off. We follow a procedure we call a consent agenda that takes up all the issues that everyone agrees to, no one insists on speaking, and that are uncontroversial. We dispose of them rather quickly, and then we go on about the rest of our business, and the rest of you can get home early and be ready for the basketball game. With that, I will read the proposed consent agenda. Item 3, Legistar 37328, changing zoning of properties located at 1 and 9 Sherbrooke Court. Item 4, Legistar 37227, approving the preliminary and final plat of Dolores Lilgy subdivision located at 1 and 9 Sherbrooke Court. We also have three referrals, items 5, 6, and 7. Item 5, Legistar 33913, demolition permit to demolish a single family residence and construct a six unit apartment building at 101 South Mills. This is referred to the April 20th meeting? No, this is referred indefinitely. Referred indefinitely. Item 6, Legistar 37369, demolition permit to allow a single family residence at 903 Old Sauk Road to be demolished as part of the Willows residential subdivision. I'm sorry, I just, yes, that's correct. And items is referred to the April 20th meeting. And item 7, Legistar 37398, amending existing zoning regulations for tobacco retailers is referred to the May 4th meeting. We have one registrant on items 3 and 4, Adam Help Baldwin, 1014 Fiedler Lane. 
in support available to answer questions. Are there any questions that would require removing that from the consent agenda? Seeing none, then a motion to approve the consent agenda. Moved by Mr. Rui, seconded by Ms. Hamilton-Nisbet. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Opposed, no. Passes unanimously. That ends the public hearings and brings us to item 8, Legistar 37851, Smart Growth America presentation prepared for the Pioneer Neighborhood Development Plan. Now, this is going to be a slide presentation, and I want to indicate to anybody who's sitting here, you may wish to move to the back couple of rows. You'll be able to see better. And who's speaking first on this? Okay. There are no registrants. Go ahead. Thank you, Chair. I'm Brian Grady with the City's Plan Division. I want to give a really quick intro for our guests this evening. As you see from the item, it's Smart Growth America. We have two folks from SGA in town for the day. They picked a great day to be in Madison, Wisconsin. On the left here is Chris Zimmerman, who's the VP for Economic Development for Smart Growth America. On the right is Patrick Lynch, who's their Research Director. These two folks head up this project, working with us, and done really probably almost all the work from a Smart Growth perspective. What we're talking about tonight is a project they did that focused on our Pioneer neighborhood, which is an area west of Westtown. The roads that bound it are basically Mineral Point Road in the north, Junction Road on the east, Valley View on the south, and Pioneer Road on the west. This is, again, the area west of Westtown. It's where the Research Park 2 was planned, and then the area to the west of that. As you go over to our agreement line we have with the town of Milton, actually. We studied this area, a growth area that has just a small amount of development in it so far, which is basically subdivision, residential subdivision, some industrial development, just kind of a scattering of other existing development in that area. What they did through this project was actually funded through a HUD Sustainable Communities grant, so they provide the assistance at no charge to the city, basically just our staff time. They worked with the Plan Division and all the different departments to try to isolate, to identify what are all the expenditures the city would have to undertake at build-out of this development area, and then going forward every year thereafter. We also identified or estimated all the revenues that would come from this project area, which is about 1,400 acres in total. So, again, they provide this work, and at no charge to us through this HUD grant. They're also working with maybe four or five other communities across the country, different size communities across the country, as they fine-tune this model, which they will then share with more communities across the country to help more communities identify what are the costs of different development patterns, trying to make the right decisions for our different investments. Earlier today, at a meeting today about 1 o'clock, we actually did a webcast over in room 260 at MMB. Spark Growth had over 1,000 folks register for that webcast. 
Uh, so uh, a great turnout uh, for that. We also shared the, had the city staff at that same meeting to share the results. They're now going to show results uh, with you all here. And then at, once they're done, we'll do uh, some Q&A for a little while and uh, just see where we end up. But uh, they're going to make a presentation to me about 20 minutes or so. And I'll turn it over now to uh, Chris. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the commission. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I should say that Smart Growth America is, for those who may not be familiar with it, a national organization, nonprofit organization, uh, that uh, works for smart growth solutions for communities all over the country. Uh, we work at the state level, at the local level, uh, and uh, do research and provide technical assistance and advocacy uh, to build better neighborhoods, provide more transportation and housing choices, and uh, more efficient use of our land. Uh, I should say I uh, had the pleasure of serving on uh, my own planning commission in the community I live in in, in Virginia, uh, and then was elected to the governing body there. So I've spent a lot of time in hearings such as you do. Um, I will say we didn't have a red uniform, though. Apparently you have to wear red here on this body. Uh, and um, uh, we didn't maybe have as much fun either. Uh, but we'll try to uh, give you a kind of a brief overview so uh, everybody can do something else apparently that's going to happen um, this evening. Uh, if I had to thought about it, maybe I'd have worn red too. Um, my boss, unfortunately, is a graduate of that other school, um, so, you know, don't tell him I'm rooting for Wisconsin tonight. I went to Maryland. My son went to Virginia Tech. If there's one thing we agree on, we don't like Duke. <laughs> the um, basic idea here that uh, we were – let me see if I can make this work now. Okay, well, it was working a second ago. Let's see. Okay, there we go. Uh, the basic idea uh, was to do a fiscal impact analysis that was not simply uh, the usual, you know, if we have this development, what does it bring in? What kind of revenues do we get from that kind of thing? Uh, what we're trying to get at is uh, how does that differ depending on how the growth occurs? If it occurs in a more compact form or a more sprawling development pattern, what does that mean? Uh, and we're interested in that for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, the, the, the plans that we've been making over the years in various communities, uh, you know, were, have kind of changed over the years, particularly in the 20th century when we went to very uh, car-oriented uh, zoning and, uh, you know, began this phenomenon of sprawl. Uh, and, and every community has kind of grown out mostly. Uh, and, but more recently, there's been interest in more compact, concentrated forms of development. Uh, and we, we do find all over the country people now looking forward saying, well, are we going to keep doing things the way we were doing in the last 50 years, or are we going to try to find uh, ways to create more walkable places, um, perhaps better served by transit in more compact forms? Uh, and they're responding to, you know, things like the studies of the last several decades that show that there are a lot of costs associated with sprawl that have not necessarily been incorporated into our incentives and uh, our planning in many places. Um, but uh, and, and, and certainly uh, the uh, studies that were done as far back as the 70s indicated that with a more sprawling development pattern, you incur more costs for a lot of uh, government's provided infrastructure and services. Um, we're also finding that uh, more walkable developments are now generating much higher values and therefore higher revenue. So that suggests a, you know, a real premium uh, that, that communities can take advantage of. That is not something, again, that is necessarily new. This is a Brookings study from over a decade ago that uh, noted that compact development patterns 
uh, could save taxpayers money and improve economic performance. Uh, nonetheless, this kind of thing hasn't really uh, been incorporated regularly in planning uh, exercises when large developments or um, comprehensive plans are, are approved, uh, in part because there hasn't been a consistent way, you know, consistent methodology, and uh, it's fairly difficult to do. Um, but we think that with better information from more communities about what these choices mean and what the trade-off is between different development patterns for any given level of growth, um, that we'll be able to inform uh, choices a lot better. So uh, we took advantage of the, the opportunity here, the HUD Sustainable Communities Program, of which Madison has been a grantee, but along with about 142 other communities around the country uh, the last five years or so, uh, you know, has promoted sustainable planning uh, around the country. And now the question is, you know, what do you do to implement that? So um, we were one of the providers of services under that grant, uh, and this gave us the opportunity to work with some communities to try and develop a new model, uh, deploy it, and see what kind of results you could get. Uh, and over time, we hope to accumulate more data as a result of working with more communities. Uh, and Madison is the, was the first one to sign up and say we'll participate. Uh, so that's why we're here. Uh, I'm just going to roughly uh, just quickly run over a few things. Uh, w w this followed on a, a report we did two years ago, uh, also on the same program, basically, uh, that looked at studies that had been done by different communities around the country, about 17 of them, and found savings on infrastructure for more compact development of 38%. And, ongoing operational costs of 10% and revenue uh, higher uh, by as much as 10 times. Now, again, these are all different studies done in different places under different methodologies. So uh, we're trying to use one uh, approach to this um, to, as I said, provide opportunity for better policy making and perhaps, you know, stronger economic performance uh, at the local level. Uh, the communities we're working with, uh, in addition to Madison, include West Des Moines in Iowa, Donia Ana County, New Mexico, Nashville, Tennessee, Macon, Georgia, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, so that's kind of our initial group. We'll be doing a, a report uh, by the end of May uh, that will uh, provide information kind of across these. And it's a, a good sampling of kind of different sized communities in different circumstances. So we hope that will, you know, give some indication of, uh, uh, you know, of what the, the, the tendencies are that might uh, be able to inform policy even where you don't necessarily have a specific study done. Um, but uh, I'm going to let Patrick now tell you about the, um, the model and how it works, and, and uh, then we'll talk about what we found uh, from Madison. So as Chris mentioned, I'm just going to run through the basics of, of how the model works and then the, the results that we found. Um, so, Uh-oh. No, it, it uh, locked up on me. Sorry. Oh, it locked. Yeah. Try that again. So what Patrick's going to describe is kind of on the cost side, what things we uh, studied that were basically focused on functions of government that uh, we can identify uh, varying cost based on how dispersed the development pattern is. So there's some things that simply go up because you have more population. You have twice as many people, you have twice as much service you have to deliver. But some things vary based on uh, the geography. Like if you have to have fire protection, you know, you have to have response time within a certain standard, and then that means it's going to make a big difference how many households you have in, a, in, in the, the response chain. Right. So a, a 
a traditional fiscal impact model would use what's called an average cost approach, where they basically take the average cost for a typical city resident and apply that to a new development, regardless of the density of that development. And that's a relatively easy and straightforward thing to do, and that's why it's done in most fiscal impact models. But, of course, we don't think it's quite right. We're just showing two examples here, but obviously in one, there's a lot more roads per capita versus the other, where it's much more dense, and so you're using that infrastructure much more efficiently. And we think there's an argument for services as well, that in more dense environments, you use those things more efficiently, and therefore the cost per capita actually decreases in the more dense scenarios. So we're still trying to use the basic kind of cost per capita framework, but to adjust that cost per capita based on the density of the development. So, you know, we thought about a variety of cost categories that might be sensitive to density, and these are the ones that we kind of concluded had some relationship. So for fire, the basic issue is, you know, how big is your response shed, and how many people can you fit in that response shed? And, you know, if you have very few people, then you're not maximizing the capacity of your fire engine. You may have, you know, employees that are not, that they're just kind of sitting around, when in fact they could be serving a lot more people. For the roads, you know, we found, and I'll talk about this later, but, you know, under low density scenarios, you have a lot of roads relative to the number of households and relative to the number of people. So the cost of maintaining those roads and everything underneath them, like the sewer and water pipes and the stormwater to some extent, that increases in a low density scenario. For solid waste, the issue would be that, you know, the greater the distance between households and your pickup destinations, the more time it takes for the truck to basically serve the same number of destinations. And over a large area, that can add up, and it can mean that you may need to tack on an extra shift in order to serve the same number of people. So that has an implication on costs. There's also an issue of fuel and vehicle maintenance costs and so forth that could increase when you have to travel more miles for each destination. And then schools, of course, is kind of a similar issue. Under a less dense scenario, you're going to have fewer students that are located within the walk zone. So you're going to have more students that are going to need to be bused. And all else being equal, the buses will also have to travel further between pickups for the school students. And all that has implications on the time required of the bus drivers, but also on fuel and vehicle costs. So those are the cost categories we thought had an obvious relationship to density. Some of these others, like libraries, hospitals, parks, we couldn't see that. We think there may be a relationship between police costs and density, but we weren't able to develop an approach really to quantify that as of yet. So let me just talk about how we did the roads. So basically we took the entire Madison metropolitan area and we overlaid a 40-acre kind of grid cell over that entire area. And for each grid, we counted up the number of people and the number of employees. And we did that by using census data. And then we also counted up the square footage of road in each of those grid cells. And then that basically results in a graph like this. So each dot represents a grid cell. And on the vertical axis, you've got the square feet of road per capita. And per capita in this case means residents and employees. And then on the horizontal axis, you have the population and employees per acre. So this represents Madison, the Madison metro area divided up into those 40-acre grid cells. And as you can see, 
you know, there's a very strong relationship between density and the quantity of roads per capita. And all that means is that for the less dense areas, you have a lot more road to maintain per capita than you do in the higher density scenarios. So we actually ended up averaging out the data. So in each density category, we averaged up the values in each cell, and that allowed us to create kind of a cleaner curve here. And as you can see, if you look at, you know, this is an example from suburban Madison, and it's got a density of, you know, 4.6 residents and employees per acre. And, you know, if you look at the road length per capita, on average for, you know, cells with that density, it's about 30 feet of road per capita that the city has to maintain. But then if you look at downtown, you know, it falls much lower on that curve, much higher density, 71 residents and employees per acre, but only 3 feet of road per capita. So the cost per capita actually declines by a factor of 10 in that scenario. And we've been looking at this in other places, too. We found very similar relationships. This is West Des Moines. This is Arlington, which is more significant because, at least in Arlington, we had many more examples of grid cells with higher density. So we could basically confirm this relationship between density and roads. So what we did is we basically assumed that your water and sewer pipes would have the same length as the roads because, in general, they go underneath the roads. And that gave us a way to kind of estimate the length of pipe you would need and, therefore, also your pipe maintenance costs. But the issue with the utilities is that the revenues are based on usage and not based on the length of pipe that needs to be maintained, right? So if I build a house and I use 100 gallons of water every month, my bill will be the same regardless of whether you need, you know, 10,000 feet of pipe to reach my house or one foot of pipe. So, effectively, that means that, you know, the revenue structure doesn't always cover the cost depending on how much pipe you need to maintain. So what we've done is tried to estimate the pipe maintenance costs based on the length, which we derived from our road length estimates, and then compare that ratio of estimated pipe maintenance costs to the revenue that you're getting relative to the city average. So because we're assuming that the utility for the entire city would cover that average cost ratio. But to the extent that for, you know, any given development, you have more pipes that you need to maintain and that cost to revenue ratio is not as favorable, then we're assuming that the utility is basically losing money on that development and vice versa for a more dense development. So that's kind of how our cost model is working. On the school transportation cost side, this slide is merely to just demonstrate that there is, in fact, a relationship between density and school transportation costs. This is data taken from the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction. They actually track school transportation costs and the density of pupils per square mile. And as you can see, as pupils per square mile increases, the cost of school transportation decreases, which only makes sense for the reasons I described before, you know, less distance between the students. Now, this is for an entire school district, and it wasn't really suitable to modeling for a specific development. So what we've done is say, okay, well, how many students can you expect to be in the walk zone with a certain density of development? And 
what we found is for an elementary school, which typically only has about 400 students, even at relatively low densities, at least theoretically speaking, you could accommodate all of your students within the walk zone. Not all, but at four units per acre, you could accommodate all of them. But for the high schools in particular, which have much larger student bodies, this density, it does become an important factor in determining how many students are likely to have to take bus. So, for example, at four units per acre, you would need to bus almost 1,000 students to the high school. Only 600 would live within the walk zone. But if you increase your density to 12 units per acre, you could theoretically accommodate all of the students at your high school within the walk zone and therefore have absolutely zero bus transportation costs. So it is an important factor. And I should say that our modeling is not incredibly sophisticated in that it does not account for specific bus routing. It doesn't account for specific capacity of schools. All of that would be too complicated. All our model does is say, you know, at a given density, how many students can you expect to be within the walk zone? And then if you're not in the walk zone, you're assigned kind of the district average transportation cost. For fire costs, you know, the basic issue is, as I mentioned, you know, how many people are you fitting within the response shed and are you maximizing the operating capacity of your fire staff and your fire engine? And, you know, we basically found that that happens at a relatively low density, but that if you go below that density, of course, the costs per capita increase dramatically. And that's basically what we found on this chart. And it's lumpy. You can see that, you know, at about six to seven residents and employees per acre, that's about the point where you would need to have a new fire engine to maintain the right level of service. So that's kind of why it's lumpy. But, of course, the stations, you know, as long as the station is big enough, that cost can be spread out over a much larger amount of people before you need to add a new one. So to some extent, you know, even though the main savings are achieved going from very low to kind of low suburban densities, there's still some savings when you go up to even higher densities. And then lastly, solid waste. We actually were not able to get enough data either from Madison or any other place that we've worked with so far to actually model this effectively. So I can only speak to the way we think it should work, which is the way I described before, which is you have greater distances between households in lower density scenarios, which necessarily would mean more time between pickups and therefore less efficient service. But until we can get more specific route data, we won't actually be able to model that. So this is not actually factored into the results I'm going to show you in a minute. So this is kind of a summary of what we found. And this is using a basic hypothetical residential program. It's not really location specific, but it's just measuring kind of a hypothetical program at different densities based on the data that we got from Madison. And what we found is that at two per acre, the kind of the city costs per capita approach $1,000. But if you increase that to 16 per acre, then it drops to just over 600, a little bit more. So it's actually a 33% reduction in the city costs per capita just by varying the density, just by varying the layout in which the development is placed. So then let's talk about revenues. This is a quicker section. So, you know, density can affect your revenue per acre in two ways. The first and most obvious one is just by putting more property 
uh, on one acre, you have more property to tax, and therefore you're, you're increasing your revenue per acre. That's fairly simple. Um, the other way that it can impact revenues is that if you have enough density uh, and you develop kind of this critical, critical mass of activity and synergy, then you actually see the per square foot values of the real estate go up. Um, and, I, and I know I've been, been working in some other areas, most recently in Boston, where we found that you know, office space in the most dense walkable urban places is actually worth about 150% more on a per square foot basis uh, than office space in the drivable suburban uh, areas. That's probably an extreme example, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good indication of what's possible. Um, and so when you combine those two factors, the, the, you know, the, the more property and the potential at least for higher values on a per square foot basis, you can uh, see enormous differences in your kind of revenue yield per acre. And that's kind of what this chart illustrates. This is also based on some data in Boston. But uh, we kind of divided up the entire metropolitan area into walkable places and drivable. And we found that the, uh, you know, the ones with the, the, the most dense walkable places, um, you know, they have an SS value of about $6.5 million per acre, whereas the average for the drivable suburban was only about $250,000 per acre. So you can see incredible differences in your, your revenue yield per acre um, just through density. Um, and just to give an example of how this you know, works in Madison, we just took um, uh, some examples of some residential neighborhoods. And on the left, you have one. You know, it's a, 40, a home on a 4,800-foot lot, which equates to about uh, nine units per acre. Um, and you know, the home value is about $400,000. Um, and so uh, you know, if you apply the tax rate, that comes to about $34,000 per acre. Uh, you can have you know, basically that same home value, but only two and a half houses per acre. Um, and the city is only collecting you know, $9,500 per acre. So it's just a question of putting more things on your land and then uh, you know, getting more value from it. It's, it's fairly simple. You know, of course, it's fine to talk about density, but then you know, the real question is, you know, even if you zone it for that density, will anyone actually build it that way? And, and it's an important question. Um, and I, I can't say that, that we've become experts on, on the Madison market, but we can speak to the experience we have in, in other places, and, and that is that, uh, you know, demographics, uh, the rise of kind of one- and two-person households, uh, the fact that uh, millennials are not getting married um, nearly as soon as they, as they used to. So you have a lot more people that um, don't necessarily need the home in the suburbs that, that want actually the more urban, walkable urban environment, um, and particularly multifamily housing. So. That actually, that actually does give a lot of momentum to uh, greater density. And you can see even just from, you know, the, if you look at permit issuance in Dane County in the last few years, as I'm, I'm sure all of you know, um, you know, uh, more than 50% of your housing in Dane County has been for multifamily. So clearly there's some kind of shift going on. Uh, we think there is actually quite a bit of market for, for density, and the polls confirm this as well. The APA uh, did a poll recently, and they found that, you know, if you ask people, only 8% of, of not just millennials, but also baby boomers, only 8% say they actually want to live in a drivable suburban place. Almost everyone wants some kind of walkability. They don't want to live in Manhattan, but some kind of walkability and some kind of density is um, important to a lot of people. So let me talk about what we, what we actually did, how we applied all this information. Um, as Brian mentioned, we looked at the, the Pioneer District uh, you know, an area, as, as I'm sure you all know, in the west edge of Madison is about 1,400 acres. 
And we were given actually two development programs. And what we decided to do is keep the development program constant and then vary the amount of acres that the development program would happen on to test, you know, what the impact of compactness versus kind of a low-density, more sprawling form would be on the costs. So the next slides that I'm going to show you are really just going to focus on this original program. You know, it's about 1,500 single-family units and about 3,000 multifamily units and about, you know, 4.5 million square feet of commercial, which is mostly office. So we tested that program on about 2,300 acres, which is completely hypothetical. That would exceed the acreage of the Pioneer District. Then the base program is kind of the baseline plan for that area as it stands now. And then the compact scenario would be to reduce that footprint to 915 acres. So this is what it looks like in terms of total costs. By moving from the low-density scenario to the compact scenario, you know, we estimate that the city costs would be reduced from about slightly over $14 million per year to just under 13. So it's more than a $1 million savings. And just, you know, these numbers represent the annual costs to the city at build-out of the program in today's dollars. And then if we look at revenues, and this is showing it on a per-acre basis, but the compact scenario, you know, is about $16,000 per acre per year versus, you know, about $6,000 for the low-density. So, you know, almost by a factor of three, you're increasing your revenue yield per acre. And then finally, you know, the real question is, you know, what's the net fiscal impact? What's the revenues minus the expected costs? And, you know, as we would have expected, you're increasing your net fiscal impact per acre pretty significantly merely by making the development more compact. So, you know, under the low-density scenario, it's about $500 per acre in net fiscal impact. But under the compact scenario to the city, you're getting over $2,000 per acre. And I should mention that these numbers right here do not assume any premium for being walkable urban. We decided to be very conservative for that, at least for these numbers. But if we were to add that in, you know, if we just said for the moment that it's 20 percent, like I said, that's maybe not the right number. We'd have to do more work to figure out what the right number is. But for the sake of argument, we threw in 20 percent. As you can see, that makes, you know, a very big difference to what the projected net fiscal impact per acre is. So fairly significant differences just by making the development happen on a more compact footprint. So we're still working on the model. As I mentioned, we don't have all the data that we need to really do the solid waste. So that cost factor is not in there. We're still working on trying to make the school model a bit more sophisticated. I should mention that the model does not account for all of the costs that might be associated with new development. There are certain capital costs like rec facilities and public health facilities that we did not include. And, you know, the other thing is that like any fiscal impact model, it depends a lot on the ratio of residential to commercial space. All those things will affect the answer a lot. And, you know, for this purpose, we decided to keep all those issues constant just so we could test the effect of density. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both counsel. We'll take this case under submission.
So the only thing I want to add, and then we'll take questions, is to emphasize what Patrick just said, that we've basically taken a very conservative approach. So we know we're underestimating the revenue premium. We're not capturing all the costs. So, and yet we're still seeing a pretty significant difference. And then thirdly, one of the things that's also not captured is that the more compact scenarios involve preserving land. So for instance, in the case of, you know, the Pioneer District's 1,403 acres, if you develop on the compact scenario on, say, 900 acres, um, there's 500 acres that remain for the future which have a value. Um, and so that might be a value for future development or it might be a value because you want to preserve it. You know, you need parkland and it costs money to acquire parkland. Um, so, you know, that's another factor to keep in mind. Uh, and then finally, you know, even the compact scenario here is not that compact. Um, so, you know, there's the potential, as you saw in the earlier diagram, showing the, the gradation, the kind of gradient between uh, density going from 2 to 16. You know, if you got farther off on the one side, there's potentially even greater savings. So that just kind of gives you an idea of the, the bounds of this thing. And uh, I think with that, we'll stop and just take questions. Thank you. Questions? Walter King. So kind of a question and a comment. I do appreciate, so, I mean, I think you tried to get to the costs that are really associated with urban services and government. Um, I, I would uh, say, as someone who represents the healthcare industry, that um, I'm assuming you were looking at hospitals. You said hospitals, but you were probably looking at it maybe a little bit more generically. And I think in healthcare, um, we're abandoning hospitals now. So we're, we're, flatlining sort of building of hospitals and now everything's moving to outpatient. And I would argue that while it's not really going to affect urban costs that much in terms of the city's participation in that process, um, that the more dense it is, the better it is for healthcare because we have less outpatient clinics we have to build for people to get to. Um, and Madison is certainly, we, we made a very bad public policy decision thanks to sort of our state government and allowed another uh, unneeded hospital to get built in Madison um, when we already had the capacity from an inpatient side to, to service that. So that's all additional costs that we're going to bear in, in our market that we should not have to, should not have to bear. But even if you take it out of sort of the private healthcare realm, we, we still have to have like community health centers and community access health centers, and the more dense it is, the less number of those that we have to provide. And in healthcare, the whole disparity between rural and urban health is a huge issue that our country is not facing from an access perspective and everything else. So I guess I don't really have a question in there. It was more of a it was, it was more of a comment. I mean, that I I think that. Uh, it, it adds to your sort of case that the urban side is better. Um, and I think from a healthcare perspective, uh, we, the industry would agree and favor more dense development as well. Well, you make a valid point and, you know, it underscores two things. Um, one, I talked about the limitations in terms of what we have in the model. So, you know, we don't now have something that accounts for what may in fact be a geographically driven cost related to, say, healthcare. Of course, what local governments do, you know, the role in healthcare varies a lot across the country. Uh, so, uh, you know, in many states, counties do a lot of that, and in mine, they don't. Uh, but, you know, it, it, that varies. Um, the other is that we're not counting the, the private costs. 
um, because that's not what this is looking at, but those, in fact, are much bigger than we're talking here. Um, you know, this is focusing on that one aspect. Uh, and then there, you know, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, one area of service, but, you know, we, we didn't talk about transportation in terms of transit service, um, which we've left out of this. Uh, the fact of the matter is if you have very dispersed development and you're, and you're providing bus service, you're providing it in a fairly, you know, inefficient way and highly subsidized. And even more than that, you have to provide obligated um, uh, paratransit service, which is really expensive. And when you're more spread out, that means there are more people who can't use the, you know, people who qualify for paratransit who can't use the regular transit system. And instead of, you know, costing you two and a half dollars a ride, it's costing you 15 to 30 or 40 dollars a ride. Um, so there are definitely other things that we have not yet accounted for that would add to that. Ms. Hamilton, this way. Um, so I've got some questions about some of your assumptions of, um, you know, you talked about how the millennials and the boomers are, are more interested in um, walkable and, and more dense locations. And in the material that we, we received, it, it was clear that you were talking also about families, which are millennials and Gen Xers for the most part today. So are you assuming that families with children are um, – are going to want the um, the dense the denser environments um, as people who do not have families do as well. So nothing in this analysis actually makes any assumption about what people want. Um, so this is just saying the cost of you know what the difference is. Right. Um, Patrick's main point was it would be you know kind of a moot point if nobody wanted to buy homes in a dense place. Then you know so what, um, but. Every indication from pretty much every metropolitan area in the country is that there's growing demand for more walkable environments. And, um, and because there's such an oversupply, because we've built so much of auto-oriented single-family subdivisions everywhere, uh, we, it doesn't mean that every millennial wants to, you know, that, they, that none of them want to go live in, in you know, the, uh, the, the car, the house with the two-family uh with the two-car garage uh, and a single-family house. Um, but what it means is that there's plenty of spaces for those who do. So there's two things that are happening. One is there are fewer families who fit that description because families are getting smaller. There are, you know, the, the, the great formation of household for the next several decades, something like 85% of household formation are singles and couples. That's partly because of the aging of the baby boom, but it's also because of the pattern among younger folks who are taking longer to have kids, having fewer kids. So. That by itself would drive it, even if all the people, you know, starting families with kids still wanted to live in suburban houses. It happens that a growing number of them clearly are saying, eh, I don't think so. I want to stay here where I've gotten used to living, you know, where it's walkable at all. It doesn't mean they all do. It doesn't even necessarily mean most of them do. But it used to be virtually none of them. Everybody started having kids would move out to the suburbs uh, or try to. And that's a big difference. Uh, and think in part when you have people like millennials who, uh, and some Gen Xers who've gotten used to that urban lifestyle, started their families later, they're less interested now in uprooting and going somewhere else. Again, it's not none of them, but because of the imbalance in the supply we have, what it means is that you have much more demand for even family-oriented urban places uh, than, we, than we've seen before. Uh, even though that's a smaller fraction of the market. Because, I mean, when I take a look at Madison, it, I, you know, you're talking about how the Madison market, you know, clearly there's a lot going on in the Madison market. I mean, we're full, in part, we'll, we are full of students. 
So we have such a large student population as a percentage of our total population. That is just by definition going to define some of the, the urban land use that we have. And then we, we have the young urban professionals, which are a euphemism for a large company actually based in Verona, who loves to live in Madison, apparently. And so we have, um, we have a couple of things going on in Madison that may or may not um, you know, I don't know what the long-term impacts of those are. And this, this is, a, is such a quantitative look. The, the qualitative aspects aren't, uh, aren't included in this. You know, do people want to move, live? You know, what kind of density do people want at different um, demographic groups, for example? And I, and I do think that that matters. Um, sure. Somewhere down the, you know, I think that there's an intersection of what that quantitative and qualitative aspects are, maybe even by demographic group. I think that would be important. Right. This is not the first and last word. It's just one piece of, you know, a puzzle. And a question I have is that also is about um, the school district, and I'm not sure where where the boundaries are here, but there um, there are developments that are. And this may be a staff question. I don't know. But there are developments that are approved in Madison that are actually part of a, a diff, uh, an adjoining school district. Um, this could maybe be Verona. I'm not certain. This is Madison. I'm seeing Mr. Parks not as said Madison. Okay. And, and we didn't, so we really weren't able to model on a school district level the way we'd like to. So um, essentially what we have here is something that only focuses on the difference in cost from being able to have kids walk to school versus having to provide a bus. So, you know, the more sophisticated analysis we want to do if we could get, you know, but the city who we're, with whom we're working don't run the schools. Um, right. And, you know, that's, that's a complication right. everywhere we go to get the right data. That's good to know. Thank you, uh, by but, the way. But, uh, <laughs> so, so that's another thing we're not capturing. So, you know, it, it, there's a big savings if you don't have to have a school bus because you have a compact enough place. They're within the walk zone. The kids can all walk. Um, there's a community I know in, in Lakewood, Ohio, did away with all their school buses because they have the schools so that every kid can walk. There's a big savings there. But even if you have school buses, how far they have to travel will drive costs. Although not capturing that. I, I would argue that on some level when you and as a person who has a who manages a walking bus of kids going seven tenths of a mile to school yeah. to and from school every day, I can tell you that we have one of the things that we have added as a cost to the city for these kids to be able to cross on the outskirts of town and the periphery is we've made sure thanks to uh, city commission that we have a crossing guard there, which costs the city a very tiny amount of money, but, and we also have flashing lights, and there, so there is an added cost to be able to walk. And I would, I would add that only because people need to be able to walk safely. And as you're, as you're adding your density, it isn't always safer, and depending on where the density lands, Although the biggest contribution to the safety is the number of I, I know I'm, I know we're low density, but I'm just saying I, I think that you know there is a there's, there's a, a safety balance again that's a qualitative too. component of it that does need to get factored in from a cost standpoint. But all right, thank you, Mr. Shepard. Next, uh, just a quick comment. Um, not really a question, but possibly include something about um, 
affordability. It sounds as if there's an assumption here. I know you're not dealing with assumptions here, but an assumption that you mentioned sort of, you know, someone making the decision to move to the suburbs and that sort. Well, Madison is facing the challenge of people who don't, they don't have that choice. They are locked in. They can't choose to exit the city and move somewhere. So in terms of the smart growth process and continuing this, maybe, once again, to make sure to address the issue of affordability for those people who, you know, don't have that choice. They just don't have the resources. So for Smart Growth America, that's a major issue, and that is something, although it doesn't really touch on this analysis, it is something that actually we're very much concerned about. The kind of compact development that we advocate for is proving to be quite popular and successful, and one of the consequences, one of the problems that can generate is, you know, lack of affordability. In my own community, I know where I was involved, we were spectacularly successful in generating transit-oriented development and becoming very desirable, and we have more millennials than supposedly any other place in the country, you know, in some of our areas. But the question is, how about low- and moderate-income people? And, you know, that winds up really being a problem. And so we had to incorporate, in that community, we had to incorporate a lot of affordable housing policy kind of built in in order to compensate for that, or to put it another way, in order to capture some of the growing value to put that into affordable housing. That is something that, again, Smart Growth America is also trying to work with communities who are having success and to say, think about it before you have that success, because I can tell you from experience when you have to do it retroactively, it's a lot harder and more expensive. So we are trying to anticipate that and kind of build that in. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Cantrell. Thank you for this report. I found it really interesting. But I guess one of your slides that showed low density, the four units per acre, was a picture of what that is. And then nine units per acre, another single-family house with a smaller lot, which I found that very interesting. And what I'd like to see in your presentation is, what does 16 units per acre look like? Because that's pretty much what I think is recommended, compact growth. And it's also interesting that millenniums are looking at more walkable communities, potentially more dense communities. And I think that baby boomers, retired baby boomers like me, are also looking at that. We're considering downtown as a place to be. And obviously downtown is more rich in services and places to eat and drink and things like that. But it's also a lot more dense. But I guess what I'd like to see in your presentation is, again, what does that look like? Because I think that my vision is it's a more multiple-family building, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's more townhouse. It could be more dense townhouse development. But, again, thank you for this. I think it was a good report. I was having the same thought as I was watching, as Patrick was giving this the second time today. When that came up, I thought the same thing. I thought, oh, we've got to get some more visuals in there. There's actually a book, I don't know if you've seen it, called Visualizing Density, which I think was really useful because it gives you pictures that correspond to these sort of abstract concepts of density. And that was actually the reason for the nice slide that Patrick put together. And I think we are going to look at doing that more for just the reason you said. Thank you for the suggestion. Any additional questions? All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll take the matter under advisement.
Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for your report. Thank you very much. Go Badgers. Count on that. I should just point out for the commission and to clarify Ms. Hamilton Nisbet's comment, this is in the Madison Metropolitan School District for future residential development. Some non-residential development may occur in the Middleton Cross Plains School District per an agreement between the two districts. They might submit that both are getting the money, just getting it from different sources. But just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Okay. That concludes our special item of business. Is there a business by members? Seeing none, secretary's report? Yes, just very briefly start sleeping extra now. Your next two meetings are likely not to be as polite to you as this one. Projects of note on April 20th on Portage Road, High Crossing Boulevard, the project in the 700 block of East Mifflin Street, the project on Feather Edge Drive. The applicant is requesting referral indefinitely on that one. So even though that one wasn't a heavy hitter, it's off your agenda. Project of note on Monroe Street. And then looking ahead to May 4th, Village at Autumn Lake we anticipate being back. Large project at 126 South Carroll Street, the second part of the as of yet unstarted Anchor Bank redevelopment project by ULI. And that's all I'll note for now. But we anticipate quite a bit of discussion on April 20th. And, of course, tobacco retailing will likely be back on May 4th as well. So thank you. Any announcements? Motion to adjourn. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. We're adjourned. Thank you.